You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. A young pastor who was just starting out, he said, do not attempt this magnificent scripture. In other words, leave this for later because it's beautiful. It is magnificent. That's probably the, the best description of this scripture. So uh, last week, Pastor Mark led us through verses 1 through 4. So we're going to start on verse 5, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore. Uh-oh. Got a therefore. Anybody graduated from DTS in here? What do you do when you hit a therefore? Go back and see what it's there for. Now, um, with apologies to the person I stole this from, get the broccoli ready. Um, did anybody grow up during the, the clean your plate club was you had to eat everything on your plate before you left the table, okay? So what'd you do when you had broccoli? Eventually, you figure out you got to eat the broccoli anyway, so you eat the broccoli first, then you can enjoy the rest of your meal. So now we have some broccoli. And because this text was originally written in Greek, it's going to be Greek broccoli, so it's even worse than broccoli. <laughs> so, in order to understand uh, Greek in general, which I completely don't, this is, and I know many of you know more about this than I do, but there are not only tenses in the verbs, but moods. There are moods and then tenses under the moods, so it gets a little tricky. But we're going to simplify it so I can understand it. The, the first mood that we're going to see this morning is the indicative mood, and that's simply a statement of fact. The indicative mood can be a statement of fact. So let's go with the sunshine, guys. If I say the sun is shining, that's a statement of fact. Now, sometimes in Scripture you will see a statement of fact as a question. That's because many of the writers of these Scriptures now, we know that God breathed the scripture through the Holy Spirit, and the writers aren't really the authors, are they? Right. So if I say, if I talk about Paul's writing, we can have an understanding between us that the Holy Spirit of the living God wrote through Paul, and that's where the scripture comes from, okay? We're all together? So if I say the sun is shining, it might have a question mark behind it in scripture and still be a statement of fact. And the, the thing about that is, I, I would say, is not the sun shining? Question mark. But it still isn't a statement of fact. So that would be your indicative mood. Now, if I say, wear sunscreen, put up that uh, beautiful young lady. She's so happy to get her sunscreen, isn't she? That's, that's the way some people accept the sunscreen. Well... <laughs> This is the imperative mood. And when I say the word imperative, what do you think of? If I say uh, something's imperative, what's the first word that comes to mind? A command. A command. It's important, maybe. So the sun is shining is indicative. Wear sunscreen is imperative. Are we on the same track? Now show the not so happy guy getting his sunscreen, because this is most of us getting our sunscreen. We're going to get our sunscreen. We're going to accept the imperative command. But, you know, 
it's, it's a little bit difficult for us. Thank you, brother. So as we uh, open up the word, before we read through this initially, I would ask and covet your prayers and let's pray together one more time. Father God, your word is beautiful truth. Help us to internalize it. Let it fall where it will in fertile soil and grow. And you are doing this, not me. So I thank you, Father, in advance and glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to read through the whole scripture as is our, uh, generally the way we do things. And, and then we'll go back and look at it. Uh, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And there uh, is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Hmm. These are the very words of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, we hit that therefore in verse 5 pretty hard. We're going to have to go back at least to verse 2 from last week's sermon by Pastor Mark where it says, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'll read that again. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Somebody besides Brother Paul Belden say amen. amen. All right, good. <laughs> hmm. It's pretty harsh language there in the beginning of verse 5. Put the death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the earth. Hmm. A lot of talk about death. What do you think about when you think about death? Tears, sorrow, maybe blood. Right? It's pretty harsh language. Put to death what's earthly in you. Now, what's the definition of, and I realize we're in a family scenario. What's the definition of sec, uh, sexual immorality? Bueller, anyone? Anybody get an idea? Well, it's any sexual activity outside of marriage is sexual immorality. Now, you wouldn't think that Paul would have to write to a church and tell them not to do that, would you? And goodness knows we're so far above that kind of sin ourselves, right? Who can do that? I know I don't because I'm way too holy. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first four deal primarily with sexual sins, and the last one is kind of a greed one. There's a, a radio advertisement for a place right down the road. They build metal buildings. And in their advertisement, a lady calls up and said, 
I want a building and I want it to be much bigger than my next door neighbors. You can hear the ad on the radio. And, and that's kind of the idea behind covetousness, isn't it? So why would the Holy Spirit tell Paul to write that covetousness is idolatry? Hmm. If there's a thing that occupies so much of my time and my mind, maybe I wake up thinking about it first thing in the morning, I need this. And this is totally random here, this F-150 electric truck, white in color, four-wheel drive if it's available. Totally random. If I wake up thinking about that and I spend time looking into that, and I maybe go to the dealership and look at that, and that's all I can think about. I'm obsessed with that. What has that done with my relationship with my Heavenly Father? Well, it's eclipsed it, hasn't it? And anything or person that comes between me and my Heavenly Father is a form of idolatry, isn't it? Even if it's my children, even if it's my spouse, my bride whom I love. Hmm. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's a little scary. Does that mean that the person who is a believer in Christ Jesus and is doing these things is subject to the wrath of God? No, no, heaven forbid. Does it mean that if I am a Christian and I'm doing these things and the Lord comes back and I'm at the beam of seat of judgment, will I have to answer for it? Yes. Thankfully, I'm in heaven answering for it, but it's still critically embarrassing to stand before my Lord and say, well, you know, there was that that time. And don't we love to tell God things as if he doesn't know? God, let me tell you about this. You will not believe. Also, God can't hear, see a sin if you hide it behind your back. You know, you just, we are so like children and not in a good way all the ways, all the time. But it's good to be like a child most of the time. It really, really is. That childlike faith is, can't be faked. It's hard to emulate. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, in these, you want to walk when you were living in them. I think we, most of us can buy into that. I've only met a couple of people that lived a holy life from birth on and uh, not a sinless life, but I've met a couple of people in my life that just seems like you can't imagine them sinning. And uh, I was speaking with one of those people and I just was so, so impressed with him. And I was working with him over a seven month period and doing construction work. And I finally said, have you ever told a lie? And he looked at me and said, brother, I'll lie to you right now. What? I was shattered. I couldn't believe it. Here's this upright person that I put on a pedestal because I was emulating his behavior. And uh, maybe not because of that situation, that person began for the last six weeks I worked with him, he would only say yes and no to me because he researched it in scripture. And it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
And he developed 14 inflections for the yes. I don't know how many for the no, but one yes meant go get my level. You know, he had different inflections for yes to get things done. But it was kind of interesting to watch him go through that. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, the first one is put to death. That's pretty absolute, isn't it? Since you have died with Christ, put to death these things. Now, now we're, we're seeing it's not put to death, it's put away. And these, these issues are a little bit different. These are issues that can come into the interpersonal relationships in the church. These are things that drive wedges into the body of Christ. These are things that cause problems in the church. And he says, put these things away. Don't put these things, this death, which put them away. And I don't know if he knew some of that was going on or not. Anger. Now, what's the proper procedure? Anger and wrath, put those together. If I have that kind of issue with my brother or sister in Christ, how do we handle it? If I'm really, really angry with Brother Costello, what am I going to do? We're going to get together and talk about it. He's, he's hiding. We're going to get together and talk about it. And say I walk away from that and I'm still angry. What do I do? Well, I go get Brother Calvin and go talk to Brother Costello. Right? If Brother Costello, I picked a bad example, is still so hard-headed that he won't come around and see things my way, what's very likely to happen when I go get Brother Calvin and we go to talk to Brother, uh, Brother Costello and Brother Calvin says, wait a minute, I don't think Mike's the problem. <laughs> Brother Bobby, I think you're the problem. You need to examine your heart. That's very likely to happen because Mike is much more righteous than I, in all truth. So, the scripture has given us ways to handle these things, but also, let's just put them away. These, these emotional issues that come up, Malice. How can you have malice against a brother or sister in Christ? Has anybody not seen it at some point in your, in your spiritual walk? One brother or sister that's angry with another? Hmm. Maybe with cause? Maybe without? Slander. What's slander? That's talking bad about my brother or sister in Christ. An obscene talk, where does that come in? Hmm, I can only speak for men in this, but comes in in jokes sometimes that are just obscene words that should never be spoken, some analogies, some things that everybody says and talks about, but it just shouldn't be said, and that's why it's in here as something not to say. Obscene talk causes problems. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Now, um, a little bit more broccoli here. He switches in verse 9 from the aeonic tense, which just means past tense for us, from a form of the past tense. Is this something that's already happened? You have already put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self that's also in the aeonic tense in the Greek, and then which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Well, that's all present tense. That's still happening. This whole situation isn't already did this, but not yet as we are on this road of sanctification. So it's already and not yet. It's hard to, hard to grasp sometimes, especially for young believers, young Christians, because they're inevitably going to commit some sin. In my case, I was uh, 44 years ago in a few months, I was sitting in a Dodge station wagon in a parking lot of a barracks at Fort Meade, Maryland with a guy named Michael Justice who had just led me to the Lord. And I think about the second sentence as I was describing to him the beautiful things I was feeling and experiencing as a brand new baby Christian. Um, swear word came out. Doesn't sound right, does it? And he just bought me in the chest and said, don't worry, that's going to happen. I said, but I don't want that to happen. He said, don't worry. He said, you're still going to sin now and then. He said, but that's a perfect example of an unintentional sin that you immediately repent for. And the unintentional sins are the ones that we most easily repent for, aren't they? I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. I stepped on your foot. I'm sorry. But what about intentional sins? What about when I sit back and see the conditions in my life, become dissatisfied for some reason, and decide to do something really, really stupid? And I know it's a sin. I know it's a sin, but I decide to do it anyway. Isn't it harder to repent for those sins? Because we're invested a little bit. And while we're talking about sin, are there any secret sins in the long run? So why do we do it? Why do I do it? There are no secret sins. There's nothing that's done in the darkness that won't be revealed in the light. So if we know we're going to be held accountable for it eventually, and it's hurting our relationship with our Heavenly Father, one thing that helps me, and it's, it's a visual and it's a little bit startling, but bear with me, if you will. When I decide on a volitional sin and say, oh, I think I'll just go to Vegas for a couple of days. And you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And you know the city's nickname, right? Sin City. Who wouldn't want to go there, right? You know, so I'm saying the clues are there. You know, if I make the decision to go to Las Vegas, all the clues are in place to help me realize it's a bad move. But I decide to do it anyway. This is exactly congruent to me standing at the foot of the cross and looking up at my Savior and saying, well, Lord, I think you can handle a little bit more sin. Is it not? 
It's kind of the same thing. Well, if I take the time to think through all of that, I'm probably going to stop and turn and repent and not do that stupid thing, aren't I? Hmm. Lord, help us. That renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, that is huge. We rethink our thinking. The Holy Spirit acts on us and actually changes. You know your brain is a biological computer? You ever think about it that way? Well, it is. Scientists have done tests, and they say that the brain runs about 33 megahertz, which is not the fastest computer, but it has an unlimited parallel interface. It can do many, many, many things at one time. In fact, the human brain can do so many things at one time that we can't count the things that the human brain can do at one time. So if the human brain, and I'm talking about that organ between our ears, just the brain, is a computer, what is the human mind? The software, exactly. And what's your memory? Well, that's the memory. <laughs> that's the database that you base your decisions on. Hmm. So basically what we need is the Lord's software running on our computer. And if we have our thinking re tuned to God's kingdom and we're thinking about the things above and not the things in the earth and our circumstances or the way the world is going or who's running the country and how and how things are getting. If we get all focused on that, it's helpful to raise our eyes and, and put on that kingdom mentality and, and go forward in the kingdom as ambassadors of the kingdom. Now, Paul does a very interesting thing here. The Holy Spirit is telling him. Here there is not Greek and Jew. Greek and Jew. Now in that time, Greek was synonymous with Gentile. And Jews were God's chosen people. So there's no differentiation between a Gentile and a Jew. What else? Circumcised and uncircumcised kind of follows. Barbarian and Scythian, well, a barbarian in Paul's time was anybody that didn't speak Greek. So that's a pretty broad spectrum in his part of the world. Scythians were a people from northern Iran and what is now Crimea that had very successfully uh, become nomads. They had a mobile army. They were the first organized horsemen. They had double curved bows and some new technology and they used uh, curved swords and they conquered at one time as far to the west as parts of Egypt. So I don't really get the contrast between people who don't speak Greek and these first organized nomadic warriors that had by Paul's time largely uh, diminished in but he's trying to make a point here, and if anybody can help me with it, I appreciate it. But the Scythian and the barbarian thing, I, I don't understand. Hmm. But we'll try to relate all of this to modern terms in a moment. Slave and free. Well, we can understand that. When Paul wrote this, 25 to 40% of the what is now the country of Italy 
25 to 40% of the population were slaves. Hmm, the Roman Empire ran on slavery. Slaves had no rights until the very end of the Roman Empire, and finally at the end of the Roman Empire, as things are falling apart, slaves finally got the right to file complaints against their owners. Up until then, you're the total property of the person who possesses you. So there's no differentiation at all. And what, what does that mean to us today? God is no respecter of persons. Is he? Does God think more highly of uh, Bill Gates than he does of a homeless person? No. Every speck of humanity on our planet is dearly loved by our holy God. Every speck of humanity on the planet is equally valuable in the sight of our holy God. And that's a mentality that we should all deeply absorb and internalize and, and take that on. Because we have, when we uh, see on the news homeless people in California or Washington State just flagrantly uh, doing the things that they do on the street, our first inclination is not evangelism, is it? If we're honest. Do we want to go there? There's a homeless camp right here in town behind the old food lion on the north side of town over next to the railroad tracks. They have their own mayor who's in charge. And they are being ministered to, just not by this local body at this time. But that's a big, big problem. If, if somewhere in my deepest inner being, I consider myself as more upright or worthy or righteous than some person that's asking me for money, isn't it? Lord, help us with that. But there's good news. But Christ is all and in all. And when we were talking about this last week or week before last, Brother Clint said, what does that mean to you? And at that time it meant one thing to me and now it means something else. And it may mean something else to you. Christ is all and in all. The bottom line for me is Christ is all that matters in all of humanity. Christ is all that matters in all of humanity. If I am as wealthy as Bill Gates, but I don't have Christ, when this short life is over, where does that leave me? But if I'm as poor as Lazarus in the Bible who laid outside the gates and begged for scraps of food, but I have Christ, I need nothing else. Hmm. So Christ is all and in all. Remember, this is a letter to the Colossians, and Paul 
under the influence and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, builds it up in tiers and levels. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God. It's pretty huge. In fact, all of chapter 1 is just about the, the supremacy of Christ and how. Verse 17, he holds everything is made in him, by him, and for him, which our Jehovah's Witnesses, brothers and sisters, when they see that, firstborn of all creation, as Brother Clint pointed out, they take a turn, but it's clear by the next two verses that Jesus was not created. That firstborn refers to, as the firstborn, he will inherit or has inherited all creation. Hmm. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Hmm. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Aren't we glad? But can you imagine all of creation, all that we can see is creation, and all the invisible things that we cannot see, he's holding them together by simple force of his will. That's how, why we don't have stray protons and electrons hopping around here in the room. Every particle of every atom of every molecule in all of creation, and I don't, I don't know if you know this, but it's a big place really big place, at least the way we perceive it. Everything is doing what it's supposed to do. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a, a pattern, a kind of a trademark in God's creation of something in the middle, if it's an atom, and other things going around it, right? Hmm. So we jump up to our solar system. We have the sun in the middle and the planets circling around it, and also some things circling around the planets. Our galaxy, black hole in the middle, everything circling around it. It might take 250,000 years to make one rotation, but follow me with the pattern in creation. It's from the tiniest thing to the largest thing we can observe. Everything is made on that exact same pattern. Something in the middle and something around it. Then we read in John's Revelation... We see Jesus on the throne, 24 elders around him. I think there's a continuous perceivable pattern here. So what does this mean? What does this passage mean to us in this day and time when we're so civilized and educated and we have such technology? Bueller, anyone? The body of Christ uh, is like that Pink Floyd song. Each one of us is like another brick in the wall. 
and we all have our gifts and we have our place to be. But as Jesus is building a temp temple for himself, using this possession of holy, royal priest, each one in its place, and there's mortar joining the bricks. And that mortar that we're all connected to, uh, if you think about a building, any building, each brick, if you think about the mortar, each brick has the mortar around it. Between that and the next brick, next brick, next brick, add infinitum, however many bricks there are, each brick is in contact with the mortar, no matter where it is in the building. And I would say to you that in the temple that God is building, of which he has a place and a part for each one of us, that mortar is love. And not a professed love, but a demonstrated love. When you get that call at 3 o'clock in the morning and somebody's in trouble, needs help, we don't hesitate. We just gather around that person and lift them up and help them with whatever problem they're currently engaged in. So love is the mortar. Hmm. It's... Uh, you have the slide of Jesus putting the, all right. Does that resonate with anybody? I love the look on that guy's face, the color in his face. Anybody ever felt that feeling? He looks like a remorseful, repentant sinner, and Jesus is just cloaking him in his righteousness. And what's so important about righteousness? Because if, if righteousness is the coin of the realm of the kingdom of heaven, and I believe it is. I believe you don't need money, but you do need righteousness to get in. I believe all of us are bankrupt totally when it comes to righteousness. Because I know I don't have any. And I met some really good people, like I said earlier. But would I, would I say that they are righteous? Not necessarily apart from our Lord clothing us in his righteousness. Now, my daughter had to leave and get back to Pine Cove, but many of you were there when Sarah and I adopted her. And the judge made a point of saying, this child is now, for all purposes, legally yours, she has the right to inherit from you. Hmm. How does that relate to us as God's adopted children? And it goes further because we are actually blood relatives with our big brother, Jesus. Blood relatives. How, how so? Pretty easy. He shed his blood to buy us. We don't belong to ourselves. We are blood relatives with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, how do we accept the responsibility of being in this royal priesthood 
in humility. We have our example, Jesus. Most humble. But he didn't take any guff. He stated the truth honestly and openly, even when he knew without a doubt what was going to happen. He took on all of our sin, which was an absolute new and horrifying experience. You can imagine if you have never experienced sin and you hate sin as part of your nature, you love all the people, but you hate the sin. Imagine taking on all the sin. My goodness. None of us are up to that. And he had options. Remember those legions of angels that he did not call on? And put yourself in the place of those angels watching your Lord being crucified. You know they were ready. We just, you can imagine. And yet, he defers to the will of the Father. That poignant prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And what was that cup? Well, that's that wrath of God. Because that's another thing he hadn't experienced. Either separation from the Father or his Father's wrath. But he took that on for me. He did. For all of us. So I would exhort you, brothers and sisters, to put away the old things. And it may be that some of us have some things that we need to put to death. Maybe some things that are related to the things on the first five things on that list. If so, we need to put that to death. The second five things, the things that drive wedges into Jesus' church and cause hard feelings and bruises and brokenness, we put those away. It's very simple. We just put on the new man. Your version may say man. Some people say self. It's the same word. Put on the new man and become slowly through the purpose, uh, through the process of sanctification, we become that person that we're destined to be in Christ. I think the one of the overlying themes of Colossians is in Christ. And there's coming a day. Don't know when. But being in Christ is going to be all that matters in all of us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.